Well, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be back at um, Bethel again. And um, kept, Steve kept saying, oh, oh, oh. I mean, just friends, you know what I mean? <clears throat> but um, we are delighted to be here. I want to start off a little bit just um, praising God for my family. Uh, my wife is, I guess, white, Caucasian, whatever you want to call it. She's a little lighter than I am. But uh, she actually has Native American blood. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. But we will celebrate 43 years of marriage next month. So we praise God for that. We have, um, we have six children, four biological, two adopted. And our, our oldest, Kristen, she's married now. And uh, we have a grandson, Keegan, who is uh, two years old. And then um, Tim is uh, married to Kim. And we have a granddaughter that's one year old. And then um, John, uh, he got married last year, on July 4th. He said he lost his independence on Independence Day. <laughs> and uh, his wife is from, from Canada. In fact, we got a July 4th, July 5th, July 6th, and July 21st marriage. And then um, Matt is our quadriplegic son who uh, got married three years ago. And they have a daughter that's turned 10. And then... Karen is in Memphis. She's the only, well, she's single. It's two single ones now, but the youngest is Justin. He's getting married next month, and um, he's marrying a Latino. So we're going to have a pretty diverse family. We just praise God for that. All because of Jesus. Amen. We are, we are excited. God's been good to us. I am president of Crossroads Bible College, where our mission is that we're training Christian leaders to reach a multi-ethnic urban uh, urban world for Christ, multi-ethnic urban world for Christ. That's our mission. We try to model it. We seek to live it out. And uh, you can, if you want to get information from us, you can get on our mailing list by going to the table at the end of the service. Dr. Kellerman and his wife Shirley will be there. Uh, Kellerman's a member of Bethel. Uh, Dr. Kellerman is internationally known for biblical counseling uh, ministry, and he's over our biblical counseling program. But they'll be at the table, and if you sign up to receive our, they got a free DVD that uh, I spoke on the subject of reconciliation rooted in redemption, that is redemption through Christ, and got it by revelation, that is the Word of God. That's what we believe, that's what we teach, and I uh, encourage you to um, be on our pray for us. Yes, these days, it's, it's challenging, pray for us. And also, um, if you want to take classes, we have our classes online. If, if you can't get to them in person, we're there in Indianapolis. So I want to encourage you to go to that table, get some information. Uh, they have uh, copies of, a, of books and, and, and articles I've written. You can't buy them today, but you can go online and get them. And then I also noticed that Dr. Kellerman has a book on the table called Beyond Suffering. And um, what he did as he looked at the African-American experience, a lot of historical things are there, a very solid biblical uh, worldview there. So I encourage any of those tools that might, might help you out. We also have one that uh, Ken Davis and I did called um, um, Ferguson, How Should a Church Respond? We actually wrote that together. He's a white evangelical trying to understand black evangelicals. I'm a black evangelical trying to understand white evangelicals. We wrote that together, and then we came up with 15 practical steps that the church could and should take and maybe just begin the discussion. So there's material that our college is trying to make available to the body of Christ. So I encourage you to get a hold of that. I've been asked to speak on this subject. I actually spoke in my church at College Park in, um, 
Indianapolis, and uh, a pastor signed these. We were preaching through parables, and he'd given me the parable in Luke 14 about the cost of discipleship. He'd given me that months before all the things broke out in the country uh, with the shooting of police, especially in Dallas, and, and, and all that was going on. He said, I really would appreciate if you address uh, the racial tensions and the political unrest and, and the uh, international security issues with ISIS and terrorism and, and, and all that type of thing. So, so what, what I decided to do with this and what I'm going to walk through today is we're going to look at that, that parable that Jesus gave on the cost of discipleship, the big decision. You and I need to understand being a disciple of Jesus Christ to make that decision. That is not a light decision. That is a costly decision. And, and we're going to look at that decision from from, from, as Christ lays it out here. And then I'm going to ask the question, well, who would make such a decision? What would motivate us to make such a decision? And, and I'm going to talk about the grace of God because I'd rather talk about grace than race because I, I, I tell them I want, I'm, I'm after grace relations, not race relations because grace is deep enough to cover all of our differences and deal with our past sin and bring us together by the blood of Christ. And, and, and then what I'm going to do is talk to you about my attempt to apply discipleship in my own life, take you through some of my experiences and show you how God, by his grace and his love, compelled me. You are a disciple. You need to, you need to do what I want you to do above all else. And, and by going through that, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not telling you what you need to do, but I'm, but I'm encouraging you that if you claim to be a disciple, you should be raising this question. What would Jesus have me to do? What does the word of God say? I am a child of God. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Sure, it costs me something, but I'm willing to pay that cost because I know the Christ of the, cro of the cross. He's my Savior. So that's where we're going to try to lead you today. If you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. And in Luke chapter 14, starting here with verse 25, the Bible says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, now I want you to stop and think for a moment. When I read the Bible, I, I raise a lot of questions. And, and, and I, I got all kinds of questions that run through my mind. And, and, and so when I read the Bible, I say, all right, you got this great, great crowd. This is a great opportunity. Jesus Christ can give a speech of his life. All these people are following. They've seen his healing. They've seen this. They've seen that. And they are captivated by him. If you were a church, you'd say, here's our chance. We can grow the church. We've got them all out here. So let's give them the pep talk. Let's give them the speech. Let's bring them in. And what does Jesus say? Well, verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that's a bummer. <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to grow your church, how are you going to go? Here's people following you. How you. Come on, Jesus. We need a speechwriter for you. Because you don't say that type of thing. I mean, here are these people following you, and they want to follow us. And, and you get up there, and you come to me. You got to hate your mama and your papa and your brother and your sister. You don't suck. What in the world are you talking about? We're trying to grow the church, not shrink the church. 
And, and yet Jesus put this out because, listen, listen, listen. Jesus wants them to know this is a costly decision. Ben, there, there's two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of this world and there's a kingdom of God. And these two kingdoms are different and quite often are at odds with one another. And Jesus Christ says, if you come into my kingdom, there are certain principles and sacrifices that are going to be necessary for you to be one of my disciples and be part of the kingdom of God. And I just want you to know, but while you're considering this, I just want you to know, I, I, I don't want to be fooled. We're not going to bring in talking about we give you popcorn and we give you candy and we got soft seats and all that. No, I want you to know, if you're going to come in here, you got to hate father, mother, brother, sister, children, even your own flesh. So you say, what, I mean, why would he say something like that? That's pretty hard. You know, we struggle with figuring out exactly what does he mean. Does, does he mean hate like, hate like, despise like, I don't want anything. To, well, well, listen, one of the things somebody looked at this and tried to figure out what it means. Well, how do, you, how do you fit that in with the great commandment? The great commandments, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with the whole heart, soul, and mind. And second and second to it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, if he just told me to hate myself, that means I got to hate my neighbor, right? And that's what some of you say. I like that. I could tell Jesus, tell him that Jesus told me to hate my neighbor. I didn't like him anyway. And, um, and, and so we, we struggle with exactly what does it mean? What, what does it mean when you look at Ephesians 5, when husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but he nourished it and take care of it. Yeah, but, 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 but Jesus told me I was supposed to hate myself. Um, oh, but, but, but what do you do with Ephesians uh, 6? Uh, that children are to honor their parents because it's the first uh, commandment with promise, a promise of long life. Oh, but no, 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 no. Jesus just told me I was supposed to hate my parents. I mean, you, you know, and so you go through this thing and you struggle with it and try to figure out exactly what was Jesus talking about when he uses this, this uh, 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 terminology of we having to hate uh, those around us. Well, what I want you to understand uh, from this, first of all, I want you to read this uh, very similar command, but I want you to read Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 32. And I think it'll show, shed some light on this. Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 32. Jesus, again, is talking about discipleship. And, and he starts off and he says, in verse 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever den denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. Do not think that I've came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Now listen, here, listen to this command, or this statement. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Beloved, that's, that's, that's the concept back in, um, in chapter 14. What Jesus is simply saying is this. Listen, listen, when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, I mean, the Bible is going to teach you when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, you ought to love your husband, love your wife, love your family. You ought to honor your parents, so on and so forth. But, but what Jesus is saying, when you come to Christ, he is king of kings and Lord of lords. When it comes to conscience, when you have to make a choice between obeying Christ or obeying a family member or obeying a, a child or a parent, you always choose Christ. 
where word of God trumps everything. That is a true disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not your race. It's not your political identification. It's not your economic background. It's not anything. But when you come to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, your love for him trumps your love for anybody or anything. I've been telling people all the time, our answer for America is not in the schoolhouse. It's not in the White House. It's not in the courthouse. It's in Jesus' house. It's where truth is. You and I have got to follow the truth. Jesus won't take second fiddle to nobody. And, and when we really become disciples, he's our king, he's our Lord, he's the sovereign ruler. We will obey him. And now listen, at the time in which Jesus made this statement, you got to understand this was a serious statement as it is today for many people. You take some people from Asian families, some people from some Middle Eastern families, some Muslim families, some people from some Native American families. If they say that they're putting their faith in Jesus Christ and some of those families, the family would completely disown them. We have nothing to do with you. In fact, some families have a death, a funeral for them in their mind. You're gone. You're out. So it was in Jesus' day. So Jesus is just trying to tell them, look, you, you, you want to be my disciple? Well, if you want to be my disciple, I got to be number one in your life. You got to obey. You got to do what I tell you to do. And, and it might cost you. It might cost you misunderstanding. It might cost you physical harm. It, 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 it costs you financially. It might cost you, but you're my This is the cost of discipleship if you indeed want to be my disciple. Jesus goes on in, in, in Luke. In Luke chapter 14. And uh, he says in verse 27, And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, well you got to make this choice to come in. Uh, Christ has to be Lord over your life, more important than anybody else in your life, and you're obeying him by the grace of God, for the glory of God. But then you have to endure with that decision. That is, you have to bear your cross. It's a costly thing. It costs you daily. It costs you weekly. It costs you monthly. It costs you annually. And by the way, we talk about a cross. We know all oh, the nice little thing I put around my, my little bracelet or my necklace or get a tattoo on me. And, and you know, it's a, it's a cross, just a beautiful little ornament. Well, in that day, the cross was a symbol of crucifixion. It was despicable. It was defaming. It was a torture method of killing criminals. Today, that would be like putting a putting a, uh, uh, an electric chair around your neck. Pick up your cross. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. I mean, this is a costly decision. And, and I won't take time to turn there, but Luke um, um, 16 and verse 13, Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. For you either hate the one and love the other one. I'll be loyal to one and despise the other one. This, 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 Jesus is simply saying, I am number one. I am the number one love in your life. And I, and, and, and I expect obedience to me no matter what the cost, if indeed you are going to be my disciple. And then Jesus went on just in case you didn't get it. I mean, I'll, you know, you talk to people and they go, oh, I got it, I got it. I'll be your disciple. I'm, I'm good, Jesus. He said, no, wait a minute. Just want you to think about it. Before you make the decision to be my disciple, think about it. Verse 28 says, For which one of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Whether he has enough to finish it. 
lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You know what Jesus said? Count the cost. Don't make a quick decision, a rash decision. You sit down and you count the call. This thing of discipleship is a big decision. It is a critical decision. It's not a light decision. It is a demanding decision. And, and you think about it. Now, if a person's going to build a tower, they don't just start building. They see whether they got enough money to complete it. Then verse 31, he says, Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Count the cost. Verse 32, or else while the other is still in a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks the conditions of peace. All Jesus is saying, hey, this is a matter of discipleship. You, you, you say you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Hey, hey, Bethel, you are a member of the church. You claim to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ as a member of this church in this particular environment with the racial tensions and the political tensions and, and, and the terrorists, the things that are going on, the economic divide and, and all that's going on around you. And you claim to be a, a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, you know, you're a multi-site and you even got an urban church plant. You claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Have you counted the cost? And are you willing to pick up the cross? I mean, it's a serious discussion. It's a serious discussion. What would motivate somebody to do something like that? Well, well, you know, I I think Bethel has it right. I was reading it on your website and pulled the statement off. It says, although Bethel's ministry has constantly evolved over the decades, the purpose remains the same. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever by developing followers of Jesus Christ who, who strive to make their lives all about Him. You got it right. You got it right. That's what it's all about. That's what changes our lives. And you say, well, why? Why? I mean, how does that work out? Well, let, me, let me just tell you a little bit about my life and some decisions I had to make. March of 1968, I'm a senior in high school. Martin Luther King Jr. has been assassinated. Robert Kennedy is assassinated. Many of the cities in America, in the midst of riots and protests, Black Panthers carrying guns on their side, prepared to defend themselves against the police. We're in the Vietnam War. So our country is in a lot of tensions like we are today. I was attending a school that was over 90% white. I'd served on the student council as a freshman, president of my class as a sophomore, vice president of student council as a junior, president of the council of the student council as a senior. I didn't know Jesus. My life was empty. All this so-called exterior fame, but something was missing inside. On a Monday night, two white men came to my house. One of them I knew, I played basketball with him. The other one I didn't know at all. He was new, a new youth director, telling the young people they need to go out and visit people and present the gospel. They knocked at my door, and I stood on the porch, and and they asked me a question. They said, if you were to die tonight, where would you go to spend eternity? I looked them straight in the eyes and said, if God is just, I'd go to hell. They seemed startled by that, and they said, have you ever heard that you can know you're going to heaven? I said, yes, I remember that. See, when I was in seventh grade, I sat in a Sunday school class. 
And, and, and in that Sunday school class, the teacher taught from 1 John 5, 13 and 14, these things were written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. He taught that entire class on the gospel. You can be saved. You can, you can repent of your sin, believe on Christ, and you can know that you're saved and going to heaven because of the grace of God. Now, I didn't hear, the, hear all that part. All I heard was that you can know you're going to heaven before you die. And I, I, went, I walked out of that class with a friend of mine. We were walking home, and I said, what do you think about what that guy said? He said, what do you mean? I said, that guy just said... You can know you're going to heaven before you die. He said, I don't know. I said, I'll tell you what I think. Nobody can know they're going to heaven before they die. I said, it's like this. I don't know anybody perfect. I said, if you're in class, if we're in class in school and everybody flunks the exam, teacher can't flunk everybody. They got to throw a curve. And you may have gotten 65. If that's the highest grade, they bump you up to 90. And those people got 20 or 15. They're going to flunk. I said, that's the way it's going to be, dude. Everybody flunk down here. God's going to have to throw a curve. And I said, when he does, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> I'm pretty good. I looked around the kids. I said, I, I'm at Sunday, uh, these kids I'm in Sunday school with, I know them. If they go into heaven, I'm going to heaven. I got a better chance than they do. And, 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 and then in seventh grade, I actually took some sins out of my life. <laughs> I didn't really care about them. I kept some, that's for sure, but I, cut, I cut, took some out because when the curve happened, I wanted to give myself a little bump up, you know what I mean? I would be sure that I was getting into heaven. I lived that way from seventh grade to my senior year. My senior year, I decided being good wasn't fun. So I blew my own curve. So when those people came to me on a Monday night and said, if you die where you go, man, I knew I'd blow my own curve. So I'm like, hey, if God's just, I'm going to hell. They said, do you believe the Bible? Yeah, I believe the Bible. Well, if we can show you from the Bible, you can know you're going to heaven. Will you believe it? Yeah, I would. So he came in my living room, took me through the Romans road, fall of sin and come short of the glory of God. I didn't have no problem with that. For the wages of sin is death. I didn't have no problem with that. But then they said, but the gift of God is eternal life. I go, wow, that's different. And then they took me to Romans 5, 8, but God committed to display his love toward us in the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then they took me to Romans 10, 9. That if I shall confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God is raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. In my living room. In my, li in my living room, I gave my life to Christ with two white men. And I want to tell you, it took. It was the grace of God. I'm telling you why I'm doing what I'm doing. Jesus did something for me no human being could do for me. They got me up and they said, hey, you, you doing something tonight? I said, no, let's go play basketball. So we went down there and we were in this gym playing basketball. Some old guy was running around with glasses falling all over his feet. He couldn't play no ball. And um, when we sat down and he said, everybody, when we finished, they said, everybody down. The old guy with the glasses running around. He said, well, Char Char Charlie got something to say tonight. I said, I do? He said, yeah, tell him what happened to you. I said, I got saved. Oh, amen, praise God. Yes, I was saved. I was the first black person to get baptized in that church. All white church. My mama said, you look like a fly in a bowl of milk. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I said, her, no, mama, I'm just a drop of chocolate. I'll sweeten them all up in time. Just give me, <laughs> give me a little time. But, but, but you know what? what, what <laughs> the forgiveness of my sins by the grace of God through the 
death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that so radically changed me. It wasn't no longer my race. It wasn't no longer the, the, the political system. It wasn't, it wasn't this. It wasn't that. It was all about Jesus. I just wanted to do what Jesus wanted me to do. And, and, and somebody took me to a meeting, and I, I, I heard a sermon. A, a guy preached on Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your uh, bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And stop being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So there I was now. I'm ready to follow God. Wherever God leads, whatever God wants. And, um, and I, I was a senior in, in, in March uh, 1960, I get saved. God begins to work on my heart, and some people begin to talk to me about a Bible college, a Bible college in, in, in Clock Summit, Pennsylvania. And, 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 and they got me praying about going to this Bible college. Well, well you got to understand now, I'm the first person to ever go to college for my family. I'm an African-American, and, and you're talking all the economic uh, injustice and all that. So I'm, I'm going to college. I applied to three state universities. I get accepted at three state universities. One state university says, come here. We will give you, uh, pay your room, your board, your book fees, and give you money to spend on the weekend. And, 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 and then I'm praying about this Bible college, 200 students. They don't even know what a scholarship is. But, but that didn't bother me so much. As to when I was praying, I'm, I'm telling God, God, you, 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 you want me to go down there? I mean, that's in Pennsylvania. The Ku Klux Klan probably in them hills. <laughs> Whoa, glory to God. I didn't know where I was going, but I told God, hey, okay, if you want me to go, I'll go down there. And God made it clear he wanted me to go, so I went down there. I got down there, and there was one other African-American girl. She was there for one semester, and she left. So I had the whole place to myself. <laughs> and... Um, there I was, and, and I'm, I'm there with some, some white students who never even seen a black person up close and personal. And uh, I'm playing soccer. So we have, I think it was three practices a day. So I'm coming from noon practice. I'm sweating. I'm walking down the sidewalk, going to my dorm. And it, this little white fella, you know, scrawny little white fella. He was a nerd. He wasn't an athlete. Had these, had these glasses on. And I'm walking past him. He stops and he goes, is that the way an in sweats? I'm like, say what? <laughs> I'm going to show you how an in fights. But, hey, Jesus got a hold on me, so I, 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 I bypassed that. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> Woo, glory be to God. Then while I'm at school, I have a, I have a friend that, uh, an underclassman that went to high school with. Great ball player. Outstanding ball player. After I got saved, we took him to a youth rally and... Uh, he made a profession of faith in Christ, and he told me, when I graduate, I'm going to come play ball with you at uh, Baptist Bible College. So I'm good with that. And, uh, but one of the things happened while we were at one of these youth uh, uh, camps, uh, all these white girls were swarming around him because he was an outstanding athlete and all that stuff. And, and, and the camp director pulled him aside and told him he can't be sitting next to the white girls. Uh, they didn't believe in interracial marriage. So he came to me and he asked me about it. He said, you know, what, what's all this about? I'm like, man, I don't know. I don't care. We're not here for girls. We're here for, for Jesus, so just forget it. Problem is, he didn't forget it. And that summer when he was supposed to uh, make up his mind to come to uh, Bible college, some black um, power advocates got a hold of him. And they began to talk to him about Christianity being a white man's religion. And he reflected on his experience, and so he decided, I'm not going to Bible college. I'm going to secular university, and I'm going to play professional football. Well, 
He signed up to go to this university, he broke his foot in the first month, dropped out of school, went to the big city, got involved with a woman, and um, beat her up and wound up in prison. One of our friends called me at, at college. It was getting near his, uh, his uh, release from prison. And he said, hey, man, he said, he said, he's in prison. He's about to get released. He'll listen to you. Why don't you go and talk to him? Well, he was three and a half hour drive away. I didn't have a car. And I said, like, well, I ain't got time to go up there. I'll write him a letter. So I wrote him a letter. It wasn't too long after that that um, my other friend called back and said, man, you, 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 it's tragic what happened. He said, our friend got released from prison. Within 13 days, he married a gal. They got in a fight. They had a pistol that went off, shot him, and he's dead. About 19 years of age. I began to have a lot of second thoughts. Number one, maybe I should have made that trip that three and a half hour. Would it have made any difference if I had went there? I had a lot of blame on myself. And then I asked myself, well, what is this whole interracial marriage thing? Maybe if they wouldn't have talked to him that way, maybe if they would have embraced him, maybe it would have been different. But then I said, I don't know. If interracial marriage is, is against the word of God, then I'm against interracial marriage. I just want to do what God wants me to do. So I decided to do a paper on race relations. I worked on that paper studying the word of God. I came to the conclusion that uh, there's only one race, the human race. I uh, wrote that paper entitled Prejudice in the People of God. And um, I said, you know, it's crazy. God created us. We all came from Adam. I like people who want to study their genealogical tree. I said, why don't you go back far enough? If you keep going far enough, you're going to get to Noah and his three sons, you know. And if you keep on looking, you're going to get on back to Adam. Because we all come from Adam. We are one race, maybe different ethnicities, maybe different cultural background, but we are one race. We are Adam's race. I wrote a book with Ken Ham entitled that, One Race, One Blood. And by the way, we're one sinful race. <laughs> All of sin and come short of the glory of God. And so I tell people, there's sin to go around for everybody, you know, you know no matter who you are. But, uh, but we're one race, one sinful race, and we've been redeemed by the blood of one. That is Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God who died on the cross, was buried, rose again to forgive me of my sin, to forgive you of your sin, and to make us brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one blood. I studied that. I get excited about that. The college has done seven national conferences on multiracial ministry. I've written, as I mentioned, books and articles and spoken on this subject all over the place. I, and I, our students get it. I like one, one of our students a while back. He um, had a kidney failure, and he got to the place where um, it, 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 the dialysis wasn't working. He had to, they had to find a match pretty soon, or he'll be gone. And then he gets a call, and, 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 and a young man, a young white man, died in an automobile accident. He was an organ donor. So our student's black. They bring the kidney. It's a match. His body doesn't reject it. And he comes in and he says to me, Press! Press! I'm your true multi-ethnic student. You got a black man with a white man's kidney in him. Hey! I said, Amen, brother. Just one race. But I tell you what makes that story even more touching. He met the parents of the young man that was killed in an automobile accident. And they said, our son was called into the ministry. They said, you are in ministry with his kidney. That we feel as though our son's mission is being lived through you. Isn't it beautiful? Only in the body of Christ. I'm looking up there. That clock don't have my time for me. How much time I got? 50? Oh, well, we're doing good. Praise God. I'd take a half hour. But anyway, that the... Um, the um, the, 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 I, I like when our students get our message. 
and our faculty and all, we try to model that message. And, and, and they joke about it and they talk about it and they talk to one another about it. Because um, this is, it, it breaks my heart. I can understand the world and I can understand the media and I can, I can understand the blame and shame game out there. But what I can't understand is how come the people of God can't sit down and have a rational discussion about things going on in our society and how come we can't model a message that is different than what we see in media. That's what breaks my heart. And, and, and I want to encourage you to keep going in the, in the, in the way that you're going and see, can you, can you make that happen by the grace of God? Can we see the people of God come together because of the Son of God under the authority of the Word of God? And we have serious discussion and we can understand the pain behind black lives matter, blue lives matter, and, and all lives matter. But we, but we can at least empathize. Even if we don't agree with everything, we can empathize, listen, and learn. And, and, and then we can talk about a healing a healing journey together for the glory of God so that the world looks at us and say, how do you do it? Well, I was in college, saved in March of 1968, in college of August of 1968, and then three years later, as a junior in college, I get involved in a church plant in the inner city of Scranton, Pennsylvania. My wife, then just another student, Sharon, right, we had her just do Bible study with ladies. And then, as we're going through this process, I'm a senior, my wife is a junior, and we're thinking God might be bringing us together for marriage. Administration of the college hears about that, and they meet with my wife, and they tell her, if, if you and Charles get married, you're going to have to drop out of college. So we decide well, what we will do, we will date in the spirit for a year. I'll graduate, wait for her to graduate, we'll date in the spirit. Our church down in the, in, in the city there, some students are part of our church. So when it gets near this time of marriage, the administration calls all the students who are all white, except my wife, didn't call me. But they met with the rest of the students, and they said to them, according to one white gentleman that was a marriage student and was a deacon, he, he told me, he said, administration met with us, and they told us that if you and Sharon get married, we're going to have to choose between the college or the church. And um, he says, but we got to meet together and decide what we're going to do. So they met together. And then he comes back to me. He said, we met together. And hey, hey, we believe that God ordained the local church. God didn't ordain a Bible college. This is our local church. We're not going to leave our local church no matter what. The administration then backed off. And they said, every student who is a member of the church can remain a member of the church, but no other students could come. And that was interesting as I was trying to explain. Student come, well, how come I can't come to your church? Go ask the administration. It was an interesting time. But I want to tell you something. You say, why, why, did, why did you stay? But Jesus. Jesus. I hadn't met anybody like Jesus who had forgiven me my sins, who was dealing with me and my imperfections and my failures, and his grace was so great and so overpowering. I loved him. I wanted to be obedient to him, so I wanted to obey him. I wanted to pick up. I didn't love anybody more than I loved Jesus, and I wasn't following anybody but Jesus. So I stuck with his word. Sharon and I were involved in that ministry in Scranton, Pennsylvania, for seven years before we came out to Indianapolis. And we carried the mission with us. 
but I want to tell you, there, 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 a lot of good things, a lot of, a lot of hurtful things happen, but a lot, of, a lot of good things. I tell people, when I went to Bible college, they taught me to appreciate the authority of the Word of God. They taught me about literal interpretation of the Scripture. They, they, I, met, I had friends there. I got, it, it was a wonderful experience overall. And I actually found my wife there, so that was a good thing. Amen? All right. So, 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 so we're trying to walk with God. All I want to do is demonstrate what does, a, what does gospel relationship look like? What does the grace of God look like in the people of God? Well, I want to tell you, back in the day when we started all this stuff, it wasn't popular. Even among evangelicals. Uh, they didn't like diversity, reconciliation, even if you said racial reconciliation, rooted in redemption. Nah, they didn't like that either. They just didn't like it. But it was called upon our lives. We stuck with it. Why? Because of Jesus. Had to love him above all else. But there was a time I was getting tired. I was getting tired. I remember telling God, listen, I'm traveling all over the country. I'm speaking here, speaking there, speaking there. Whatever. I'm tired of this stuff. I'm tired of this racial reconciliation stuff. I want out of this stuff. About three times in my life I've told God I'm gone. <laughs> I figured out he doesn't take counsel very well. So I'm back. But I was getting tired. And I was, in my spirit, I was complaining, complaining to God. And then I was in Seattle, Washington, and my son, Matt, basketball practice, broke his neck. My executive administrator, executive vice president, called me and said, one of your children's been hurt, taking him to the doctor's hospital. You want the number? I said, yes. He gave me the number. I called. A lady answered the phone. I asked her about, you admitting my son? She said, yes. Your son has suffered a C4, C4 fracture. He's broken his neck. Your wife is coming down the corridor. Uh, I put her on the phone. Now, Sharon gets on the phone. She's crying. She's weeping. Matt's been hurt. It doesn't look good. They're moving to another hospital. She hangs up. I tell the people at the seminary I was speaking at, I got to get out of there. So we get a 1 a.m. flight out of Seattle. The professors prayed with me. They were all white. I didn't care. Let me say, get a hold of God. I went to the airport. Some pastors came over to pray with me. They were black. I didn't care, as long as they get a hold of God. I got on the plane. I'm on the plane. I'm sitting in my seat there, and I'm, I'm reminiscing. God, I don't have money. I can't take care of a, a quadriplegic son, a disab dis disabled son, as far as I knew at that time. And, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and, and all I want to do is serve you. And now you've let this happen to me. What are you doing? What's going on? I don't know why you're letting this happen. I can't do it. And God reminded me, Romans 12, 1 and 2, you are a disciple of mine. You gave me your life as a living sacrifice. I knew Matt before you knew him. I knew Matt from the womb. I created him in the womb. I brought him into your house at three days old. I've taken care of him these 16 years. You just be a living sacrifice. I got a little peace. I cried, but I got a little peace. I got back to Indianapolis, and the story began to unfold. All the people that had went in, doctors and others, Christians, uh, Steve is there as our youth pastor, and all people are ministering to my wife. And, and, uh, and, and, and then uh, I got a copy of the Indianapolis Star paper, and on the front page of the paper is a picture of our son, and, and the uh, a caption is, young athlete injured, but not his faith. And I found out the story behind that was that uh, when they called my wife, and, and, and she got to the, to the place where, where, at school where they were moving him on a stretcher to an ambulance, and she comes running, and she's looking at her, at her son, and, and she's crying and she's weeping over him because he's on, on a stretcher and, and, and she's weeping and he looks her on the stretcher he looks up and says mom pull yourself together remember God's in control 
And a, and a sports writer heard that, and that was the article that, that spawned that. And, and I was telling God, I, I, can't take care, I can't take care of my family. So, so, so our church had a, had, a, had a one-time offering on a Sunday night, took up $167,000 for the Matt Ware Trust Fund. Some, some business people, they had a banquet. They took up $140,000, part of which was a brand-new 1998 Dodge Caravan van, uh, uh, handicapped, adapted, Given to us scot-free by Kroger Food Store. Some, some, bit, some construction people say, you need a home. You need a better home. We get 10 acres of land, sell our house. They build our house at their cost. Some other people gave us money to help out. We moved into that home that free. And, and, and what made it so, so, so beautiful, God had Native, America, Native Americans helping us, Asian Americans helping us. He, he had uh, white helping us, and, and he had black helping us. He had international people helping us. He had disabled people helping us. And God said to me, Look, look, look at son, look at son. This is the body of Christ. It's beyond color, creed, education. We come together to help one another for the glory of God. <laughs> Matt's story went all over the place. It went international. In fact, Billy Graham came in the area to do a Billy Graham, Billy Graham crusade. And uh, for the youth night, they had three pre-recorded testimonies. One of them was our son. God made the faith spread wide because the body of Christ united around a need. It wasn't black or white, red or yellow. It was simply the cross that brought us together. I want to encourage you here at Bethel. You are headed in the right direction. You're sure you can be misunderstood. Remember, Jesus was misunderstood. Remember, Jesus was falsely accused. Remember, Jesus was unjustly crucified. But behind it all was the sovereign hand of God. And he went down into that tomb, but thank God he arose. And he's alive today. And Gary, Indiana, northern Indiana, needs to see a message what a redeemed people can do through the grace of God for the glory of God. As you move on your multi-sites and as you come together as the people of God, let's cause the people of northern Indiana to have their jaws drop when everybody is so polarized and cannot have a conversation, when everything's falling apart and they're shaming and blaming one another. Let them look to Bethel and say, here is a people who figured out by the grace of God through humility that they are disciples of Christ and they obey him above anybody else. And they have become a model, not only for Northern Indiana, but for the state, for the state of Indiana and for this country and for this world, because you are modeling reconciliation rooted in redemption and guided by revelation to the glory of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. How I do pray, God, I, I just can't get over your grace. It's so extravagant. That's why, God, that's why I want to be your disciple. I want to love you above all else, oh, more than my race, more than my political association, more than my economic or anything. I want to love Jesus above all, and I want to bear my cross. I want to be obedient to the word of God, and I, and I want my brothers and sisters to do likewise. Bless, continue to bless, and expand Bethel and their impact for Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen.